Good afternoon and welcome back to the EJS show on the Liberty Block with Ed, Jody, Steve, and Elliot today. This show is being recorded live and will be available within a few hours as a podcast, which can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for the Liberty Block. We invite anyone listening to this podcast to join us live on Zoom or by phone and share your thoughts on the issues that we discuss. Today, we are honored to have with us Daniel Miller, the president of the Texas Nationalist Movement. And uh, obviously we wanna hear everything that you have to say, Daniel, we welcome you. I'd like, I'm hoping you'll answer at least the following questions. I'm sure it's part of your spiel. Um, why do you think any state has to secede? Right. Why can't we go on the way we're going? Why Texas? What's special about its constitution and its history? Um, and then obviously what makes you think this can work? And then whoever has more piercing questions, we, we'd love to hear them. So you could start with your elevator pitch or however you like. Look, I, thanks I, for joining. I have, look, I, hey, thank you very much for having me. I, I have found that, uh, that the best way to unpackage this is just to tear the paper off, you know, and let's dig into it. So uh, you know, obviously, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about Texas becoming a self-governing independent nation. And where, you know, where this conversation goes, I think, is the conversation that everyone and every state in the union needs to be having right now uh, and asking themselves this question, is, is our state best served by staying inside the union? Now, you know, from, from a Texas perspective, we can obviously say not. And, you know, it, there's a, a whole um, bushel basket full of, of reasons why we can say that is. But the, the beautiful part about the Texas debate that I have found in, in the years that I've been engaged in it uh, is that the, the application uh, of the, the arguments, the grievances, the, <clears throat> the problems that we have with being in the union, uh, really apply to just about every other state in the union. Uh, just a, a good example, and then we'll, you know, we'll just take it wherever you guys want to go. You know, a, a, a good example of this or, or something that, that has been really enlightening for us has been watching the growth of self-determination movements around the world. You know, at the end of World War II, there were 54 recognized countries around the world, and at the end of the 20th century, there were 192. So this debate that we're having about Texas independence is not, you know, really a new debate. It's, it's something that may be quasi new to Texas politics, you know, in the recent, you know, last 20 years or so. But it, from a, a global perspective, this drive towards self-determination is not new. And, and so what you find is, is that all of these independence movements, even the ones that are currently working right now in, in Scotland and Catalonia and, and so many other places, they have at their root this, this fundamental belief that the people in those areas just want the right of self-government. They want to be able to govern themselves without having this undue uh, influence exerted upon them or having some overriding um, say by some government that they didn't elect forcing policies on them that they don't want. So that, that really is the heart of the matter. You know, Texans, you know, drilling it down to a Texas perspective, Texans, frankly, are just sick and tired of living under 180,000 pages of federal laws, rules, and regulations administered by 440 separate agencies and two and a half million unelected bureaucrats. 
Uh, at the end of the day, Texans believe that the best people to govern Texas are Texans. Now, for those of us who weren't around back then, um, Texas was originally independent before joining the union. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of amazed that you just insinuated that someone on this call might have been around then. I, I think that I, I, I don't know who that was aimed at, but I thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> Uh, no, from, from uh, 1836 to 1845, Texas was a self-governing independent nation, right? We had our own president, our own Congress, our own Supreme Court. We had our own ambassadors. We had embassies around the world. Uh, we had our own army. We had everything that an independent self-governing nation has. And, and of course, it was tough, right? I mean, Texas was on essentially the edge of the frontier. Uh, but, you know, some people want to pretend that Texas had it super difficult as an independent republic, but people also forget that the reason that Mexico encouraged settlement into Texas is because it was wilder than a March hare to begin with. So, you know, they wanted to try to settle it down. So the, the, the challenges that Texas faced in those nine years as an independent republic were just an, an extension of essentially plopping down a population in a, in a nation state in the middle of a wilderness. But after that, Texas joined the union and, you know, we, but from that time forward, Texans never really lost touch with that independent spirit, that independent streak. You know, we fought our own revolution. We gained our independence. We have our own declaration of independence, our own independence day. You know, we have our own monument to the victory that gave us our independence, you know, the battle of San Jacinto, which by the way, let me just go ahead and throw it out there is definitely taller than the Washington monument. Just a little Texas brag there, folks. Um, but you know what? What we see are what we see from Texans is Texans reaching back into that sort of almost um, you know cultural memory that we have, and and bristling at the fact that if you printed up all the federal laws, rules, and regulations we live under and stacked it, it would be higher than the San Jacinto Monument, uh, and and that's just contrary to the nature of of being a Texan. Um, we we're the home of, of the saying that says that the government that governs best governs least. <laughs> so assuming that you're denying having been around back then, um, where did Texas go wrong? Why did I assume they were the ones who wanted to be admitted to the union? Yeah, I mean, there was there was an offer made uh, to join. Now, uh, I will tell you that Texas uh, had the discussions to have Texas join the union uh, initially were not they didn't go well. I mean, uh, you know, Texas might have joined the union a little bit earlier uh, than 1845 had those discussions gone uh, a di differently. But what you find is that if you study the history, and I, I don't dwell in the history, I'm not a historian, um, but if you, if you dig into the, the history of the annexation, one of the things that you find is that those people that wanted Texas to become part of the union within the union essentially use project fear to, to swing people over to the annexation of Texas by insinuating that if Texas were not annexed, that the United Kingdom, that Britain would grab, would get a foothold in the North American continent right on the Western territory of the United States. And so they, they drummed up this, this British scare, you know, kind of like the, the Russia, Russia, Russia thing that we see now, right? They, they drummed up this scare about, about Great Britain getting a foothold and being friendly to an independent Republic of Texas. And so they were able to persuade 
the people inside the United States Congress and Senate to to entertain the idea. And that's essentially what got it across the finish line. And they do the same thing now, right? They say if, if Texas or New Hampshire or California were independent, some of their big foreign uh, hostile country like China or Iran or Russia would take it over. Sure. Oh, you know, and that's that's the thing about it. You know, it, it's it's amazing when you study self-determination movements around the world, how much of the, the tactics used to try to prevent people from embracing self-government just repeat. You know, they say history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Uh, there, there's so many similar threads all throughout. Uh, you know, that's one in, in particular uh, that, that I think is important. But even a, a more modern day example is the, the, you know, the Project Fear, as it was dubbed, that, that showed up during the Scottish independence referendum that reared its head during the Brexit debate. And frankly, it is the same sort of arguments that we get against Texas. A lot of those themes are exactly the same. They're just rehashing old arguments, which basically tells you that they have no good reason, no good rationale to for Texas to stay in a union if they've got to use fear as their, their primary weapon. <laughs> okay, uh, Jody, Ed. Questions on monopolizing. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, Daniel, welcome. Um, I just want to say, you know, eleven years ago, I I was on the left, and I am would have been shocked that I'm even having this discussion today with someone who's talking about secession. Um, but like Project Fear, um, we seem to live in a society that is incredibly intolerant to listening to ideas that challenge their assumptions. That's where I was. I'm glad I'm not there now, but um, I have a couple things. I, I really like the personal story of why, like what brought you to create this and try and really get this movement going? Because I can imagine in our society today where rather than have a logical, rational debate about something, uh, people tend to attack the, the person. So I'm imagining you've been attacked. And so I'm wondering about your story, how you started, why, and because, you know, it takes quite a, someone to be willing to put up with being really attacked. Yeah. I mean, you know, being attacked, it happens, you know, when you, when you make a stand for something, you get attacked, but you know, to the, to the, to the issue of the personal journey, I mean, I, I wasn't hatched thinking that Texas should be an independent nation, right? And back when I started thinking about this issue and this issue was introduced to me prior to that, I was a dyed in the wool, red, white, and blue patriot. I mean, that's where I was. And I grew up in a household. My, my parents were blue collar. They were uh, depression era folks, right? Raised by my grandparents. But that we, we never, you know, we, we always had enough but never more than that, right? I mean, they, they, they had enough to, to get by, but not enough to get ahead. And so we were definitely in a blue collar family, but I never wanted for anything, right? It was all about knowledge and books. And, and you know, some of my earliest memories are sitting around the dinner table at night at, you know, 5 p.m. and listening to the news and hearing my parents talk about what was happening on the news. Uh, you know, dad was always a, a political guy, not that he ran for office, but I can also remember as a young child going out and put out campaign signs with him. So, you know, there was always this sort of cultural family thing that said, 
you know, look, it's it's not enough to shake your fist at the TV. You have to get get in the in the mix, right? Um, and and so at the age of eighteen, I ran for mayor of my hometown. It was hometown five thousand, a little over five thousand people. Lost horribly, which you know I can't blame them. I was eighteen for Pete's sake, right? <laughs> uh, you know, but but it was it was an, a great experience. And from there, you know, I stayed active. And and things for me really changed. There was this one moment uh, I saw an ad in a newspaper. Uh, calling for patriots to you know get together or whatever and I showed up and there were only other two other people there it was in the basement of a bank building in Longview Texas and so we had some witty banter about how disappointing it was that people were not more concerned about what was going on and so the the other two guys that showed up were, were brothers and they you know we after bantering back and forth they said okay look this is what we want you to do they said we would like we would like for you to go home and read these two things and tell us which system of government you think we live under. And they handed me a copy of the U.S. Constitution, and then they handed me a copy of the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you, I, you know, as a Cold War kid, being in possession of a copy of the Communist Manifesto was kind of weird. Like, and, and I tell this story, people think I'm making it up, but I literally hid the copy of the Communist Manifesto under the seat of my car afraid that if I got pulled over with it, what would happen, right? <laughs> well, welcome to being a product of the Cold War era. So, but I, I took the challenge and I read the two and I said, wait a minute. I said, the federal government resembles nothing like this, you know, maybe in the shell or form, but in substance, it's not what's in the constitution. It's way different than this. And then I started reading through the Communist Manifesto and I'm like, wait a minute. I, I see what a progressive graduated income tax is that's called the income tax that's the internal revenue service and you know the the restrictions on private ownership of property and you know you know the attacks on religion you know those were all parts of the communist manifesto and it, it was an eye-opening experience for me and, and i will tell you i was never the same uh i got in the high gear activism mode and you know i hounded my congressman into retirement which you know, frankly, he had it coming. I mean, his only claim to fame was he was on the other uh, other end of the phone with Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky were having their tryst. I mean, that literally was the only thing that guy ever accomplished. Um, but, you know, harassing him about, about their spending and their taxation and just going from town hall to town hall, blowing up their BS. And, and what I found was is that while it felt good in the moment, every time it seemed like you would make one step forward, you would take 10 steps back, right? It was frustrating. It was like a bird flying into a window repeatedly, just trying to get through. And, and I got to a point in 1995 and 1996 where I was just, I was miserable. I was down. I was frustrated. I was feeling very much like people around the United States are feeling right now, right? I, I am committed to the cause of liberty to the principles in which we all perceive America was founded, but the, the, the monster has gotten way out of control, right? <clears throat> and so uh, in August of 1996, uh, it was in this concept of Texas becoming an independent nation was introduced to me. And as I processed it, I began to realize, wait a minute, you know, if we can as a state be a self-governing independent nation state, then it fixes the frustration. It is a pressure valve. Now I don't have to worry about a graduated income tax. Now I don't have to worry about, you know, 
a trillion dollars worth of debt or inflationary monetary policy or, you know, 180,000 pages of laws, rules, and, you know, all the things that I talked about, all of a sudden that goes away. And, and when that goes away, the distraction goes away, right? Suddenly we're not distracted by all the bright, shiny circus that's going on in Washington, D.C., and, and we can focus on the government that's closest to us right here. And so August 24th, 1996, I, I committed to the cause of Texas independence and, and have been fighting for it ever since. All right. All right. Go ahead. Okay, I, I have a few questions for you if I have, if I have a chance. Uh, first, mechanically, how do you see this working? Mm -hmm. uh, do you have this planned out? Do you see this as more akin to the way Czechoslovakia broke up, Yugoslavia, or something else, or something? Let, let us hope that it's not Yugoslavia. I, I will tell you that, uh, and, and I've said this time and time again, and I use the, the Balkans as an example, and I use Sudan as an example. Um, that is, that is what happens when you don't embrace the right of self-government. When you don't, when you refuse to have an adult conversation about fundamental differences in systems of governance, mm -hmm. the Balkans and, and Sudan is what you get, you know, where Sudan, you, everyone knows the story of Yugoslavia's breakup, ethnic cleansing, mass executions, mass graves, war crimes, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, Sudan, mo mo most people don't, realize about what happened with Sudan, but Sudan had a 30-year civil war where, uh, you know, millions were killed in that civil war. They were killing one another, essentially trying to fight over the territory uh, when all it took was finally having an adult conversation and say, wait a minute, let's just split. Christians, everyone else who wants a more Western system of government, let's, we've got the South, everyone else gets the North, Boom, civil war over, lives saved. So that's what happens when you don't have the adult conversation about this. Um, but from, a, from a, the standpoint of mechanically how this happens, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the split in Czechoslovakia, you know, the Velvet Revolution and the soft secession um, were, were very telling. But I go back to that stat that I, I said earlier, you know, 54 recognized countries at the end of World War II, 192 uh, by the end of the 20th century. Uh, the vast majority of those were held, were, were essentially accomplished by a referendum of the people saying, we want to do this in, a, in a, an absolute respect on the part of the parent, if you want to call it that, and the international community for the right of self-determination. Uh, so from, from the technical standpoint, how it would happen here in Texas, uh, it, it's a pretty straightforward proposition for us. Uh, number one is we have to have a referendum. Uh, Article one, section two of the Texas Constitution is abundantly clear about issues like this. It says that all political powers inherent in the people and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit. And the people have at all times the inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their form of government in such manner as they may think expedient. Okay. So that's, that's literally Article one, section two of the Texas Constitution. So it, what, it, what it tells us is that issues like this have to be put to the people. So we know it has to be go to a referendum. To get a referendum, we don't have initiative and, you know, typical INR initiative and referendum here in Texas. We have to have a statutory framework put in place via legislation. The good news is uh, this session, which will start January the 12th, uh, State Representative Kyle Biederman is filing legislation that would create that statutory framework 
for us to have that vote. So once, so let's just kind of go through the process. We, we get the bill passed. We have the referendum, which in the legislation would be slated for November 2021, and the people vote for Texas to leave. What happens then is not, you know, not something that happens overnight, right? Uh, I heard someone during the Brexit debate say that independence is not an act, it's a process. Well, that's what we have to deal with. We have to deal with a transitional process. The transitional process will involve several things. Uh, we have to make some modifications to our constitution to bring it in line with a self-governing nation state, uh, retitling some, some offices, expanding the powers of some offices uh, to, to make it more in line with the nation state. We've got some statutory issues that will have to be addressed as well, You know, particularly statutes that uh, are specifically on the books because of our relationship with the federal government or only exist because of that, that uh, relationship. Uh, in addition to that, the other statutory issues will be, have to be the creation of new agencies to administer functions of an independent self-governing nation state that do not currently exist. Beautiful part about that is we already have the framework in place. And, and we could talk more about that in a bit if we want to get into that, go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but then the other is the other aspect of that after that, after those two is the, uh, the international aspect of this, where we have to sign on to various international covenants, conventions, and agreements that are pretty stock and standard for the things that we deal with here, like fisheries, air traffic control, very mundane things that, handle, that are handled between independent nation states um, that, that are typically not covered in, in statute. So those are some of, the, some of the key core issues for transition. There are more than that. We can talk about that if you'd like. Um, but, but ultimately, what we're doing is we're just following a pattern that has been well established over the last 70 years. Well, suppose the people of Texas speak and speak clearly that they want to they want to leave. Mm -hmm. And you, you then say, all right, it's time for this adult conversation that you mentioned a little while ago. Who would you have that conversation with and what do you have to offer? Well, the 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 adult conversation comes in the lead up to the vote. Right. We saw that. Um, as a matter of fact, it was very crystal clear uh, in the in the Brexit debate that, you know, from in the 30 years from the time that they signed the Maastricht Treaty, um, the, the debate about the UK's relationship in the European Union was was, you know, always up for debate, always up for discussion. Uh, people were not happy with that relationship. Uh, but it wasn't until that there was a there was an actual vote when David Cameron called for the vote. At the moment, the real Brexit debate began, and and that's where the that's where the adult conversation comes in. Okay, so uh, that, that adult conversation wouldn't be with say the federal government. Yeah, I mean that that's yeah. a transitional. Yeah, that's a the conversation with the federal government a transitional issue. You know, the independence at the level we're talking about. You know, we're essentially talking about withdrawing from a union, and so we have to begin to look at the United States in the terms of any other political and economic union. And, and as such, that, that conversation, you know, there's a lot of negotiated issues that are going to have to take place. But ultimately, the political mandate for that conversation to even take place must originate from the people of Texas. And once the people of Texas have spoken, those are the only people that need to speak on it. Okay, but some, some things have to be thought about in advance. Like, for instance, We've got a 26 or 27 trillion dollar federal debt right now. Sure. Texas is not going to just be able to walk away from that. 
Yeah, um, there are typically there like if you go to our website, um, I, and I would encourage anyone who's who's watching or listening to go visit the Texit section on our website at tnm.me/texit. We actually address the issue of of um, of national debt or federal debt, however you'd like to refer to it, uh, specifically. And, and what we have found, especially from how this has been handled in uh, around the world, is that. Texas will be on the hook for a portion of the national debt, right? There's no escaping that. What's up for negotiation in relation to, to the federal debt is what that amount is. And, and there are different mechanisms for calculating that uh, that have been used around the world when other nation states gain their independence. Um, I can guarantee you, though, that part of that negotiation over the federal debt must include the fact that Texas has overpaid anywhere from 103 to 160 billion dollars every single solitary year into the federal system. All right, stupid question. Why should Ed, why should Daniel Miller be on the hook for the debt that a few idiotic politicians in DC ran up over the last few decades? Well, I mean, that you could ask that about anyone. Why should I? Why should you? Why should anyone? Yeah. I agree. Is, it's not my debt, it's politicians. But, but that's not how it is. Right now, we all, we all owe it. We all pay taxes on it. And Texas, the Texas nationalist movement is saying, we're, we're going to deal ourselves out of that. And I don't see how that happens peacefully, quite frankly. Well, yeah, um, but I, Texas nationalist movement didn't say that we're going to deal ourselves out of. What, what, what Daniel Miller from the Texas nationalist movement said was effectively that Texas would be on the hook for a portion of the national debt. What is up for discussion uh, based on standard international convention is what that amount will be. And, and our position will always be, you know, post-Texit on the national debt issue is that any conversation related to the national debt in Texas, assuming any portion of that must, must, must include the fact that we have overpaid anywhere from 103 to $160 billion dollars every single solitary year in the federal union for probably the better part of three decades. Okay. Well, so if you're saying that you've overpaid, that's, that's a dip, that's a fancy way of saying, I, I, and I don't mean this, I'm not trying to pick an argument with you, but sure. it, that sounds to me like a fancy way of saying, Oh, sure. We, we acknowledge that we have a responsibility to pay the debt, but in fact, we've already overpaid. So you guys maybe owe us. I mean, it doesn't well, it has, like look, it has to be a part of the conversation. I mean, when you're talking about apportioning out the national debt, right? There are you could you could say, okay, look, you do it on a per capita basis. That that's one that's one mechanism. You could split it up and say, you know, one fiftieth, which is not an accurate way to do it. But there there are many many methods for how this is calculated. The one thing that is, has been abundantly clear throughout history on this is no nation state has ever gained its independence and been able to walk away from assuming a portion of that debt that was assumed as part of whatever that that union is right so there is an acknowledgement that we have to do it but what, what we're saying is if we're going to start calculating out you know what the responsibility is at some point the federal union has to take responsibility for the fact that texans have overpaid they have effectively stolen that money from us we're one of about 12 states on average that pays more to the union than we get back out, right? And that's been this case for the better part of 30 years. So there has to be some 
some consideration for the fact that that money has come out of the pockets of hardworking Texas taxpayers and gone into the federal coffers, never to be seen again, only to be redistributed to other states of the union. I have a few questions about referendums. The referendum um, that's going to happen if Biederman's bills pass, mm-hmm. if it passes, um, what's the threshold for, for that uh, ballot initiative passing? Is it 51% or 66%? No, it's, it's 50% plus one. It's just wow. like if we were proposing a constitutional amendment or electing an official. It's a, uh, you know, it's 50% plus one first past the post. So great. great. Yeah. So you mentioned that there were, uh, and considering I'm a pessimist, this is pretty optimistic to hear that maybe 60 years, 70, 80 years ago, before world war one or world war two, there were 50 countries in the world. And now there are uh, triple that more than triple the amount of countries, meaning nations have successfully uh, seceded or gained independence from their father nations. Right. Um, of those, I'm sure some were wars, some were other referendum on independence of all the referendum that passed officially like a ballot initiative and a referendum that passed do you know how many were successful and how many were squashed by something like a big ussr how many of those were successful the the referendum yeah i mean it's it's been interesting and and i don't have the stat i literally just read an article uh the other day that i hadn't seen since the scottish independence referendum and and it was uh, an article talking about where um, where these referenda ha- have been, what the status of them has been. And, and they cited, I, I can't remember how many specific uh, it was, but literally all of those independence referenda passed except for two on the first ballot. And within, I think it was less than 10 years, both of those other two had had gone back and revisited the issue and voted to leave. So you know, there was, you know, so that was written around the time of the Scottish independence referendum. Of course, we know the Scottish independence referendum failed the first time, uh, but, you know, it's getting ready to come back up. I mean, uh, Sturgeon and, and the rest of the SMP have already said, we're going to have this vote again. So, you know, we, we, what we find is that where the independence referendum have happened, there has been a super high rate of success, you know, almost 100% on the first ballot and then taking it up to the full 100% typically on the second ballot. Oh, by success, I, I mean, I don't mean passing. Sorry if I, if I asked the question in a confusing okay. way. I mean, of those that, that passed, like 51%, how many governments, federal governments, squashed them and ignored the people's vote in the ballot? And how many allowed that state to then secede? Because so, people would say, and I'm a pessimist, I think that if Texas votes even 95% on the sure. ballot, votes to secede, the federal government or the Ninth Circuit will say, that's unconstitutional, you can't leave. And they will use force and men with guns to make sure you cannot leave. So yeah. what's the success rate of, of ballot initiatives happening as far as the, the uh, bigger governments actually physically using force, like with Catalonia yeah. and Spain maybe, to force them to stay? Yeah, I mean, I think the growth from the 54 recognized countries to the 192 pretty much says that. I mean, because the only time you have spikes in relation to that, uh, you know, to those numbers, it's a pretty steady growth curve. But you see spikes. Most of that came about as part of the United Nations decolonization efforts, right? Because the United Nations pushed for decolonization post-World War II. Uh, and then the breakup of the USSR. And, and even some of those, you know, those constituent republics, air quotes, um, in the USSR had referenda on that particular issue, whether they wanted to stay as a part of 
you know, the, the CIS or, or what, you know, they had that, that referendum. So, you know, just the, the sheer growth should tell you what you need. What you almost never see post-World War II is people going through a legal process to have a referendum, right? You know, this, this process where it's statutory, right? It's not some flea flicker play. Some guy decided that he's going to go to his barn and set up, a, you know, the independent Republic of Hayseedsville or whatever, but, you know, you see when you see a, a legally recognized referendum process that ends in an affirmative for independence, it, it's it's virtually impossible to find an instance where you see some kind of crushing blow come in from the constituents. Now, you know, would that happen in a place like China? Probably. You know, would that happen if someone tried that in North Korea? Probably. But aren't we ultimately supposed to be better than them? Barely. But in the U.S., here's what I see happening. Even if this ballot initiative passes, either the federal government will use force and men with guns and military to stop the actual secession and independence, or they'll do it in a softer, tyrannical way by using one judge to issue a ruling saying, well, the bill was unconstitutional because blah, 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 and voter ID and the vote was all, the vote was not appropriate because, you know, since they require voter ID, blacks were, you know, tougher. It was tougher to get them to vote because they don't, they can't get IDs. And therefore, the whole vote was unconstitutional, and therefore, it's all null. And that's what I think is going to happen. How, how clever that they suddenly learn about voter integrity over the Texan issue. Look, we're, we're, look, we're fully prepared for that fight, right? I mean, if, if we want to have that fight, but ultimately, regardless of the issues of, you know, the constitutionality, which the only fallback they have is Texas versus white, which is an utter joke. Um, but that, that literally is all that they have on. But they can nullify any vote. They can say they can, you know how they do this with, with, um, Mm -hmm. with signatures, with petitions, with ballots, with vote. They can say, what do they do in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, Arizona, Pennsylvania. They say if any single tiny I wasn't dotted or if it was, or any T wasn't crossed, they can say, um, it was a little bit tougher for those with poor socioeconomic status to vote. And therefore the whole vote is unconstitutional. Well, look, this is why we proposed the legislation the way that we did, right? This is this is absolutely no different than a constitutional amendment, right? We have those constitutional amendment elections every two years. That's uh, why we didn't have a special election for it. We wanted it on the same ballot that everything else is. We, we're, we're trying to ensure the integrity of the process from start to finish. E- even, you know, going so far as to have it on the same day that we would normally have a constitutional amendment election. So, all of that language is in the bill, but so I, you know, I don't, I don't worry about that. And, and frankly, I don't worry about what the federal reaction is going to be because we, we've get, we've gained this scenario out. So have they, I mean, let, let's be honest. If you go back and, and read the articles about Joe Biden's debate preparation and his transitional preparation, part of their transitional preparation was that states would break away from the union or that, you know, and, and not necessarily Texas. I mean, they were talking about California and some of the others in the, in, in the prep. So, you know, this is, this is something that they've gamed out as well. Here's what I know. Uh, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that about half of the United States military, when asked uh, and polled by third-party polling companies, right, this is not anecdotal, uh, but about half of the, the United States combat troops believe that states have an absolute right to leave the Union. That's been polled uh, on more than one occasion. Zogby, probably the most famous poll where that question was asked. So what, what you're facing is, you know, if anyone would think that the United States military would somehow invade, 
you have to ask yourself this question. Number one, what would the pretext be for the invasion? Is it because we voted wrong? I mean, because, you know, think about what the international backlash that would be. Think about what the backlash would be from its own citizens in the other states. Just because Texas voted wrong and well within our rights to self-government, that suddenly the military is going to be called up. Well, that's a great way to go ahead and unravel the rest of the union. You know, if, if they called military force on us, if they decided that they wanted to keep us by force of arms, that is a good way to lose about half of your other states as well. So, you know, knock yourselves out, boys. But the other part is about how to prosecute that war when half of your military does not agree with aggression against a people that voted wrong just because they wanted to leave. Not to mention the one in about five or six troops uh, that are from Texas that are going to be working their way back here so they can enlist in the Texas Army. Uh, but let's just get down to what's practical, okay? What we've seen elsewhere, uh, you know, to, to the point of this soft, this soft um, retribution, if you want to call it that, like, you know, we've heard all the fantasy stories about blockades and embargoes and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And, and let's just kind of get real. Texas is the Texas is an economic engine. Uh, if there is any disruption in trade with Texas, we're not the ones who suffer because the rest of the world wants to trade with us. Uh, you know, we're, we're perfectly fine here. But ultimately, what, what this will wind up probably shaking down to is the United States fighting hard during the period of the referendum, during the debate. I, I keep saying that this will probably be at least a billion-dollar campaign money spent on both sides. They will bombard us with Project Fear propaganda from the moment that this looks like it's going to go to a ballot. And, and at the end of it, if they lose, if they're on the losing side of that, uh, then what's going to happen is they're going to they're going to thump their chest very much like you know the EU did and, and some of these other people and and talk about you know how it's going to be terrible for business and people are going to starve in the streets and you know we're going to let grandma die in a ditch and you know all that kind of normal stuff but at the end of the day there will be a trade agreement that is executed a free trade agreement just like the United States has with 22 other countries that are not part of the union. Uh, there will be a mutual defense agreement, very likely, uh, inked between us. And if we really wanted to tweak them, we would just join NATO and then they couldn't say anything about it. Um, you know, there, there will be, you know, we will sign on to the Postal Convention. Uh, there will be all of those things that, that Texas can do as a self-governing independent nation. And at the end of the day, the United States federal government can make a decision uh, about whether or not they want to execute that sort of free trade and free travel agreement with us or make it difficult on their people. Uh, ultimately, it will be those people remaining that will be the problem. And I will tell you, the internal pressure that the federal government will be under to let us leave peaceably uh, will, will be enormous. So let me I ask a couple of questions, if, if I may, Daniel. Sure. Um, First of all, from what I understand, you're not asking for permission. You're saying if we win this referendum, then we don't really care if you give us permission. But um, so Rush Limbaugh several weeks ago used the S word <laughs> and apparently very quickly had to withdraw. Yeah. Alan West made his statement a few weeks ago, which some of us found really exciting. But I read one article today saying he didn't even mean secession. He meant some kind of confederation of states. So what I want to know is... Yeah. What is the biggest name that publicly backs this? And are there people who are even privately backing it? 
And why would I believe for a second that the minute they're scared of you, George Bush et al., Karl Rove, uh, Mr. Cruz, et cetera, will crush you like a gnat? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing battle with Karl Rove because I know he's not a fan. Uh, he is not a fan of Texas independence. Look, the, the issue of independence <clears throat> cuts very, very differently than typically any other issue, right? And so, you know, the, the tale of the tape about who publicly supports us will, will be when the, the, legisla the legislative session starts and legislators can start signing on. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to speak to Rush Limbaugh's comments. Those are his words. He can own them. Uh, the same thing with Alan West. Uh, I will point out that uh, Colonel West's comments have been pretty inconsistent on the matter. Uh, but at the end of the day, what matters the most about who supports this is really among the people of Texas. You know, the fact that we are getting legislation filed, that's legitimate legislation, not some Don Quixote tilting at windmills piece of legislation, uh, and, and there is serious political dialogue about this right now should tell you pretty much everything you need to know about where the level of support is. Uh now, I, I will say this, is that it's taken a, a long time to get to this point. Uh, you know, many people forget that back in 2016, we facilitated a, an open floor debate on adding a union withdrawal uh, provision to the Republican Party of Texas platform right there in front of international media at the world's largest political convention. We did that. We forced that to happen. And that was the that was not the first step. You know, we go back to the legislative session before that, where State Representative James White actually attempted to file this legislation, but the referendum aspect of it was stripped out by the Texas Legislative Council, and it made it it made it file it was filed as a resolution, and because it had no teeth, it could get no support. So, you know, we we just keep can keep cranking it all the way back to 2009, where HCR 50 was filed, which was the state sovereignty resolution, and the first time that we, as an organization, engaged with the legislature to get this thing done. Um, I, I will say this: is that I I would not, our organization would not be pushing so hard for a referendum if we did not think we could win it. So, what makes you think you can win it? That's what I really want to hear. Yeah. Well, look, the, the polling numbers are all, are in our favor. Like every, every single solitary poll that has been taken recently on this issue shows that we're in the catbird seat. But more importantly, we actually conduct internal polling in the TNM. Uh, our internal polling is conducted using the same methodology that leave.eu conducted their polling on the Brexit issue, which happened to be the only poll that predicted the Brexit outcome. When every other poll had it wrong, leave.eu had it right, and we use the same polling method. So internally, we're looking at a 60% win, plus or minus about three to three and a half points on either side. So we feel very comfortable and confident that not only do we already have the support, but when the time comes to have the vote in the debate up to it, we believe that we can ultimately make the case for Texas better than the opposition can. And it boils down to, to the, the subject that, that we talked about uh, before the broadcast started, which is when you, when you put it to the people of Texas in this way, when you ask them if Texas was a free and independent self-governing nation right now, and this was a vote to join the union, would you vote to join the union? And if so, why? 
and you watch the opposition scramble. And when you put it in those terms and you, you sell people on the fact, you know, you let them know that they're being robbed to the tune of 103 to $160 billion a year, or that federal regulatory accumulation has cost every Texan about 75 to 85% of their income, or, you know, around April 15th, when everybody has to pay that federal income tax, or when a new administration comes in and wants to bake, break the back of energy and agriculture here in Texas, or, you know, name, name any thing that you can think of related to the federal government, and they do the absolute best job of selling Texas independence for us every day. You know, I wake up every morning and I thank the almighty for CNN and Fox News and all those guys, because all they do is pump federal dysfunction <clears throat> into people's homes and make Texans extraordinarily dissatisfied with the federal status quo. Now, you're going to need to get the referendum. You need a majority vote in the legislature. How does that work? Yeah, the, it, it's going to wind through exactly like any other piece of legislation. It's going to be a tough slog. So you need the governor. We're going to need the governor. And there's one there's there's a, about one way to make that happen with the governor, and that is public pressure and specifically pressure from his donors. Now, I'm going to tell you that, you know, we could potentially if we if we ran the table in the ledge, we could override a veto. But right now it's you know, it's obvious that we're going to have to go through the governor's office and we're going to have to deal with that. But, yeah, the, the process is majority in the House, majority in the Senate. Uh, sign off on the uh, on the governor's desk, and if not, we need to override his veto. So, it's uh, look I, the the odds are 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 tough. I, I readily admit that, but as I said, uh, and I told all of these legislators from the time that we started trying to advance this piece of legislation, uh, this 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 issue cuts politically very different than any other issue that they've ever dealt with. The number of people that will come out of the woodwork on this to support it uh, is going to surprise people and not just the number, but exactly who is going to come out and, and support this thing publicly. Uh, it, it's going uh, to be one for the history books, and frankly, it is. This is the first time a piece of legislation like this has hit a state legislature uh, probably in 150 years, and, and this is pretty exciting. How many people are in your legislature? Uh, interestingly enough, we have 150 in the House and 31 in the Senate. And, and here, I'll give you a piece of Texas trivia you'll appreciate. Ha the easiest way to remember that is how many, how many books are in Psalms? 150. 150 according to most counts. Right, 150. And so how many, how many in Proverbs? That's 31. That's cute. Okay. <laughs> That's how... I, even even the structure of our legislature acknowledges it. So that wouldn't help me because I don't know those numbers offhand, Daniel. <laughs> I do. It's my business. But um, and if you had to guess how many people in the legislature are remotely on your side, solidly on your side, uh, that's it's a great question. I thought I thought there was going to be more to what you were asking. Um, yeah, I mean, look. We, we have a lot of fence centers, which is, uh, look, that's, that's been part of the problem of getting this legislation filed from the jump, uh, have been the people that offer their support behind closed doors, but didn't want to be the first one out of the trench. Um, you know, I told, I, I was at lunch with one of the state senators, one of the state reps just a couple of weeks ago, 
and we talked about this very issue. And, and I said, look, I said, we've been, we've been shopping this bill to you guys since 2009. I said, and representative Biederman happens to be the guy that had the courage and the fortitude to step up and say, I'll be the guy to put my name on this thing and, and let's get it filed and I will work this. You know, so I think they were probably lamenting the fact that they missed the opportunity to be the one that filed it. But at the end of the day, you know, so what? There's going to be plenty of opportunity when the legislature starts in, in January, uh, January 12th for these guys to run down there and add their names on as co-authors and sponsors and, and everything else. Um, it, it's going to be going to be quite uh, quite an interesting show. There's no doubt. Now, some people are asking from the outside, but I kind of have the same question. Let's yeah. say you succeed and you declare yourself an independent nation. What are you going to do about immigration, about letting nice folks like us in and keeping not such nice folks out? Uh, you know, uh, I would I would say get in, get in before it's over with. <laughs> no, and in that because people are asking, there are a lot of people in this country. Sure. I can't tell you thousands or tens of thousands who would love to have a quote, you know, independent place to go, a free place to go. An all, and, an alternative. I'm sorry? An alternative. Yes, a refuge, like Reagan said. So if you were an independent nation, what would be the criteria for me to immigrate to your country? Well, look, I, you know, we're the, the Texas Nationals movement is not about setting post-Texas policy, right? I want to just make sure that we're abundantly clear on that. That was the trap the SMP fell into that cost them the Scottish independence referendum. Uh, What's yeah. oh, okay, Scottish, okay. Yeah. So, you know, that that we we're not here to write post-Texit policy in stone. So we we have from an organization standpoint, we talk about post-Texit policy in two ways. Number one is um, we we talk about what we would propose and, and the way that we would propose to handle it. And the second way that we deal with post-Texas policy is we talk about based on the way Texans have voted and policies that they have supported, legislation that's previously been filed, how they would handle, how they would likely handle it, right, to establish a probability. When it comes to the issue of immigration and the border, those two issues are, are very closely tied, uh, especially here in Texas. Uh, for the past 10 plus years, Immigration and the border combined uh, have, have polled as the number one political issue for Texans. And, and it's understandable why. Um, you know, the government's, federal government's unrestricted immigration policies, their illegal immigration, uh, their porous borders cost Texans on average about $12 billion a year. Uh, and that's not federal money. That's money that has to come out of our pockets to deal with those two issues. So it's, it's near and dear to us. Now, to, to paint a picture of what that's going to look like. Obviously, Texas is going to want to fix and address both issues. And, and the, the issue with the border is quite simple. Uh, it is uh, essentially uh, as strong a border as we can possibly get uh, to ensure, you know, to, to basically deal with the national security implications of, of the borders. But the second thing that Texans have, have really expressed, and, and contrary to popular wisdom, is Texans don't mind immigration. We want a sensible immigration system. What's not sensible is the federal government's handling of, of um, illegal immigrant or of immigration. They have a broken system uh, that is Byzantine at best, 
And that immigration system does not account for anything other than can you get here and uh, wait long enough to uh, till you get amnesty, right? So the immigration system is fundamentally broken. Uh, what we as an organization prefer would be an Australian-style points-based system, uh, which I think makes uh, a ton of sense for a place like Texas, especially with the booming economy and the industry that we have. Uh, but what that criteria will be, that will eventually be set by the people of Texas, which is the great news, right, is we finally have a chance to address the immigration and border issues that we have not had being a part of the federal system. I'm sorry. So if I understand you correctly, you're going for independence based on the Texas Constitution pretty much as written today. Well, yeah. I mean, Article 1, Section 2 of the Texas Constitution has existed in some form in every constitution that Texas has had all the way back to the Republic days. No, but I'm saying in the sense that you don't want to change Texas's type of government. No, no, it's not, okay. not about that. As a matter of fact, you know, there, there have been some people that have posited and say, well, we have to have a constitution written before we can be independent. And it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the process, right? It's, that's not the way that it is now. Gov the, the way that we are stays the way that we are until that changes, right? We don't have to have some document pre-drafted to be able to be independent. What, what could happen is one of two things. If, if Texans believe that we need to draft a new constitution, they could call a constitutional convention. Our, our take on it is that it is far easier for us because of the current structure of our constitution to amend it to be suitable for a nation state than it would be to scrap the entire document and start from scratch. Okay, Jody, you had a question? Yeah, I know Ed does too. I have two questions, but if we can only get to one, that's okay. Um, and I'm sorry, Daniel, these are probably questions you hear all the time, but okay. um, talked earlier, you know, what does prevent, what do you say to people who say, look, if Texas secedes, here's this big um, problem out there waiting for some other nation to come and pounce on it and grab geographical hold, uh, you know, in our area and cause problems for the United States. I can see how, okay, the remaining United States wouldn't want that to happen. It would, it would be in their interest to not let it happen. But an argument for the left could be, well, we don't, we don't want that problem of having to go, you know, save Texas from some other nation coming in and taking them over because we don't want that hindering the rest of us. What do you say to that argument that how, how, does, how does Texas protect itself in that environment? Well, yeah. I mean, look, te Texas obviously will have national defense. I mean, there's, you know, some, some people are under this mistaken impression that Texas is vulnerable uh, and we're not. Most people don't realize that Texas already has its own military. Uh, if you go to the state website for Texas military department, we have our own three branch military already that could serve as the backbone for a national defense. Uh, what's more is if you apply sort of the NATO minimum standards of 2% to 4% of GDP for defense spending, it would make Texas the, about the fifth or sixth most well-funded national defense in the world. So, you know, we don't, we don't have, you know, we, we handle it just like every other self-governing nation state does, right? We, we have a national defense. And, and honestly, that money can be uh, spent far better dealing with actual national defense as opposed to force projection around the globe, right? It can be done a lot more efficiently. Um, that being said, you know, people have this mistaken impression as well that <clears throat> somehow 
<clears throat> excuse me, that somehow Texas becomes independent and then China invades the next day or Mexico invades the next day. And, you know, that I, I, I hold those theories akin to, okay, well, that's just as likely to happen as an asteroid hitting at the same time or the Yellowstone super volcano erupting. Um, you know, those, those outside marginal things that, that, that people talk about, this fa apocalyptic fantasy stuff. Um, you know, and so I, I love to remind people that, uh, first off, if China were to try to invade Texas, they'd have to go through California first, which would be hilarious to watch. Um, and then the, uh, the other part of it is Mexico doesn't want to invade us. They want to trade with us. Um, you know, the Mexican military is scaled down. I talked to a reporter from uh, Univision the other day on an interview, and we had a, a conversation about how ridiculous she thought the argument that Mexico would invade would be since, you know, we are Mexico's largest trade partner. Mexico is our largest trade partner. And Mexico has been systematically decommissioning its military to the point that I think they're down to just prop planes. Uh, when our organization actually has more supporters than their military has members, um, I think we're going to be all right. Not to mention the fallback, uh, which I love to remind everyone about, is that Texans, on average, own about eight guns for every man, woman, and child on the uh, on the soil. So, uh, you know, if, if we've if we've got to roll this guerrilla style, I think we're going to be all right. Um, but it's not going to come down to that. You know, no one ever suggested. It, it's amazing to me. No one ever suggested that when Scotland was going to have uh, the referendum to leave the UK, that suddenly the UK military would come in and, you know, level Glasgow to the ground and turn it into a glass parking lot. That's because uh, they don't have the reputation of, for violence that the US government has being violently, uh, you know, involved in like 180 military conflicts right now as we speak. Well, right? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, when your former prime minister gets uh, harassed out of public view by being called a war criminal, um, I, I'm sure there's some people out there that would disagree about their the viewpoint. I mean, let, let's be honest about the British uh, propensity for violence over the last you know 300 years or so. But that's another story. <clears throat> but the the fact of the matter is is that you know it's suddenly only when we're talking about the United States. Now, let us not forget, you know, and Elliot, I think you and I actually talked about this the last time I was on Liberty Block. Let us not forget that for about 70 plus years, the United States federal government has sent our grandfathers, our fathers, our sons, and our daughters around the world to fight and in many instances die for the right of self-determination for people all around the globe. Now, are, are, is what we're talking about here the fact that they would send our sons and daughters to fight that? And look, and I, and I speak this from, from a personal standpoint, I have a son who's in the army, right? So, so I know, I know at a very fundamental level why he's in the army and, and what he's doing and why he's doing it. And, and I know that at any given moment, he could get that call and be deployed somewhere for whatever purpose. But in many instances over that last 70, 75 years, it has been in support of the right of self-determination to drive the Nazis out of Europe so that the people of France can enjoy the right of self-government again, or to protect the population or to drive the Japanese out of the Philippines. You know, I mean, there are, there are examples after examples after examples in the last 75 years. And so what people want us to believe is that suddenly the federal government is going to reverse course and say, 
what is good, it's good for thee, but not for me. You're right. It's the ultimate hypocrisy. That's the way the left is. It's hypocrisy, but it wouldn't surprise me if U.S. politicians are hypocrites. That we know they're hypocrites. Well, we, we know they're absolute hypocrites. But but I'm I, and I'm not saying that they they don't love to bathe in hypocrisy. What I'm saying is that it is fallacy to think that they can bathe in such hypocrisy after 75 years of contrary foreign policy and not suffer major repercussions. Because you're looking at a situation where if Texas goes, or any state for that matter, follows a legal process and has a vote and votes to assert their right of self-government, and the federal government reacts very poorly to that, right? They do the stupid things that we're talking about. You're, you're very well looking at an international community sanctioning the United States. At, you know, you're looking at an international community that, that could put significant pressure on the federal government to say, okay, look, we know your hypocrisy knows no bounds, but here, let us introduce one to you. And, and our problem is, excuse me, um, I think it's indisputable that a large percentage of the conservative movement in this country are or were acolytes of Mark Levin. And one of the reasons I don't listen to Mark Levin is he believes, quote, secession was settled by Abraham Lincoln. And there are a lot of people in this country, and I don't want to mention names, but I would say 99% of strong conservatives in this country, excepting one of my children, two of my children, believe Abraham Lincoln was the second greatest president in history. And I just heard it the other day from someone who I thought was pro-secession, and just I can't remember who it was, but a pretty um, major pundit said Abraham Lincoln was the second greatest president. So considering he's up there on Mount Rushmore, I believe, and a lot of people worship him, and he did kill 600,000 people for doing exactly what it is you're proposing, we have a history as a country of invading and killing and burning to the ground seceders. So we're not coming out of this out of nowhere. And peeling off the Mark Levin acolytes is not easy. Well, let, let's be honest. Uh, you know, the, the United States also has a history in the 19th century of enslaving people of color, but that also changed, right? That, that Excellent point. Changed. Excellent answer. No, but what I'm saying is Mark Levin and his ilk are very, very influential among those very conservatives that would support these things. And I don't know how you beat that opposition, the worship of Abe Lincoln, and how can you worship Abe Lincoln and be pro-secession? Because at the, at the end of the day, and pardon me as I clean my glasses so I can continue to see your smiling visage, um, at the end of the day, it's not a debate on Lincoln's legacy, right? When, when we're out there and we're engaging Texas voters, the only people that are bringing up the Civil War in the 19th century are the opposition, right? The, the, the Texas voters, the, the, the men and women that will ultimately be casting the ballot and that are fired up about Texas independence, what they care about is Texas and, and their pocketbook and maintaining their job and not being crushed under the weight of federal regulations. You know, the, the things that, that we talk about uh, that are the rationale. The only people that are interested in revisiting the 19th century are the opposition. And, and I tell them all the time, you know, when, when they try to push back against us with that nonsense, you know, after, after the 1860s, the world kept spinning. You know, I woke up this morning and it was 2020. It wasn't 1865. 
Um, you know, so there, there's a lot of things that have transpired and changed since, since those days. And just because something happened in the 19th century doesn't mean that it will happen now, nor should it happen now. You know, if that, if we were, if we were still stuck in the 19th century, you know, we would still, you know, uh, people of color would still be drinking out of separate water fountains, right? Women couldn't vote. Uh, you know, I mean, go on and on. And, and so if those things are different, then why is this thing suddenly the one immutable law of the universe that states can't withdraw from this union? And, and I reject it. And I reject it because there's good reason to reject uh, that, that line of thinking. Let's see, earlier, earlier in this conversation, Dan, you said that your, your position and the Texas movement will not take any position on future uh, legislation or future roles of government in a, in a post-independent uh, situation. And what you're saying now sort of contradicts that. And I, I understand why you don't want to, why you might not want to alienate people by picking a side and thereby alienating people who don't, who don't agree with that. But on the other hand, if you don't pick a side, if you just say, well, we're going to leave everything on the table. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can you say, I mean, for instance, that you're not going to go back to, to slavery. I mean, not that I think that's what your motive is, but we know that's what the, the opposition is going to say. Um, and, you know, we already had a civil war over the issue of slavery and over the issue of states wanting to have slavery within their borders. So if you're not willing to take positions on what a post-U.S. independent Texas is going to look like, how can you say definitively that it won't have slavery, well, that it won't have any of these awful things? Well, first off, our, our constitution and laws that currently exist forbid such ridiculousness. But let me let me just clarify, uh, because may, maybe I did not make my point uh, the way that I needed to. We don't write post-Texas policy in concrete. Someone says, what's going to happen with immigration? I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen with immigration because I'm not a dictator. The te Texas nationalist movement is not going to be the government that's in charge. We're a, we're an organization, right? So what, what we do, what we do is we talk about, we talk about it in two ways. We talk about post-Texas policy from the standpoint of as an organization, this is within the scope of our mission. This is what we think should happen, right? This is what we would propose. And then the other side of that is we can extrapolate from the issues and attitudes that we know Texans have expressed and, and extrapolate from that and, and say, this is probably how Texans will handle it. However, it's ultimately going to be up to Texans to handle. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I apologize if I did not make that abundantly clear at the beginning. Yeah. So I understand that Texas has, has one specific goal and it's to make Texas independent. Um, that being said, just to play a little bit of devil's advocate and to latch on to what Ed asked, but asked in a slightly maybe more radical way because I'm more radical. Um, <laughs> if I live in Texas and I want independence because I believe you know the primary issue is that the federal government has consistently and increasingly and severely violated my natural rights. Sure. And we talk about natural rights a lot on, on Liberty Block, the right to property, the ultimate right to private property, the right to self-defense, the right to freedom of speech. My biggest issue with the federal government is that they violate that. Can you give me some guarantee or assurance that the new independent Texas government will not similarly violate my rights increasingly? Because they already do. They already do violate yeah. gun rights and they have taxes and they have some other freedom of speech violations, sure. don't they? Sure. Look, I mean, 
this is the one thing that I have never done in this process is promise people utopia because it's a fallacy. As long as, as humans are involved in this process, it is going to be, there are going to be problems. We will have to always be vigilant, but it, it's a matter of, of really the, uh, the level of political bandwidth that we have, right? And, and being able to affect what we can versus spending all of our time working to affect something that we cannot. So if you, if you look at these layers of government, if we shuck the federal government and take them out of the equation, where does the focus of the Texan go to, right? It goes to the, the government from the state house to the schoolhouse, the one that is closest to us. That's where their attention is drawn. Now free of the shiny circus in Washington, D.C., you have no choice but to contend with and deal with what's been staring us in the face the whole time, which is we have problems here in Texas that need to be addressed. Now, the beautiful part about that is, is that in the, these independence referenda, they, they promote a, a very, um, very serious look by a significant portion of the electorate, probably a high, you know, higher engaged electorate than ever before. But, but it forces some introspection about our government here at home. Now, that's, that's great. We need that. We need as Texans to be able to have that conversation. But we can't have a real conversation and propose real solutions while everything is essentially being dictated out of Washington, D.C. You know, last session of the Texas legislature, almost half of our legislation it referenced the federal government, a federal agency, a federal regulation, a federal statute, a federal court decision. That's half of the bills in the Texas legislature, not to mention all of the legislation that's being foisted upon us and regulations by the federal government. Now we've got half of our laws that are being written here in Texas having to deal with that nonsense, right? So you take that out of the equation with a highly engaged electorate and a, and a government that literally is within from my house, probably a five hour driving distance. Um, and, and my guy who has to come here and live in my neighborhood when he gets done legislating. Yeah. Suddenly it's a completely different story, especially when you don't have politicians jockeying to leave state office to try to get some federal office and playing to a, their donors that come from K street. I'm not asking for, for promise of utopia, but, and, and I don't live in Texas, but if I did live in Texas and someone were telling me to support this movement, I'd say, well, why? And, and if the answer is, well, because the federal government has done some bad things, I'd think to myself, well, yes, I agree with that. But what bad things do you think it's done? And what guarantees or forget about guarantees, how will the independent Texas be different? Because it doesn't, I don't hear anything that says that there's any guarantee or even any promise that it's going to be different. It's just a you know, there's no uh, fundamental philosophical opposition to tyranny. It's just, we don't want it coming from Washington, D.C. And if you're going to create a new government and a new, uh, you know, a new, you know, not a new constitution, but if you're going to create a new independent Texas, why not say, we believe in freedom of speech. We believe in the right to property. We believe in you know, X, Y, Z, you know, make a list of things. I mean, the, the framers because, put in a, you know, because we do, I mean, th this is the part of the process. We're not having a revolution, right? We're withdrawing from a union. We, we have those guarantees already. And, and those guarantees that exist inside of the Texas governing documents are part of the reason that we fight so hard to throw off the shackles of the federal government. 
because we have no guarantee. Even though our Texas Bill of Rights guarantees us the right of assembly and freedom of speech and the right to keep and bear arms and all of these things in, in what I believe are much more eloquent ways than, than what is on the federal side, the fact is, is that it, as, we, as part of the union, we can't guarantee any of those things right now because some federal judge can go and the stroke of a pen overturn any piece of our constitution, right? So we don't enjoy the right of local self-government as is specified in Article 1, Section 1. So if you want any guarantee, if you want Texas to be, if you want guarantees of freedom, they exist in our documents, but the only way you get those and the only way you guarantee those is to let Texas be Texas and Texas cannot be Texas inside the federal union. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to let everybody ask some closing questions so we can start to wrap up. I'm going to start off. I'm going to ask you the question you probably wanted to hear for the last hour and a half that you've been on, which is what can people do to help? Mm. And parenthetically, does it help for Texas, Texas legislators who are going to be voting on this to know that there are tens of thousands of people who don't live there and may never live there, but strongly support this movement? Yeah, to, to your second question first, um, and that's only because I love the term parenthetically. We don't hear it enough in everyday conversation. Uh, but but to, to your point, uh, yeah, look, the, these legislators need to hear from everyone. You know, the, the fact is, is that Texas independence is, is hope for many. You know, people uh, not inside of Texas see Texas as an opportunity to to have a safe harbor for the things that everyone believed America was for so many years, right? For the principles that, that made what, what they thought made America great. And so, yeah, absolutely. These legislators need to hear from anyone and everyone. Um, and, and so we encourage that, you know, to- How would you, could you have some mechanism on TNM.me or some type of petition for other people to sign? other than just individuals sending emails to people we never heard of. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we have that now. Uh, my, you know, our registered supporter uh, form is open. It's on every page of the site, but you can get to it easily at tnm.me slash vote. Um, and, and, you know, we, we take that. I mean, that, that supporter number is, is super important and has really helped us um, through not just the, the voter engagement, but really through our legislative activism. So, that yeah, de definitely go to our website tnm.me/vote, fill out the support form, or you can find it at the bottom of every single page of the site. Uh, but but to to your first question, which is what people can do to get involved, uh, I, I say this, and and I, I tell it if if you're in Texas, uh, get get on board with TNM. I mean we are the second largest independence movement in the Western hemisphere. We're outside of the two major political parties, the largest political advocacy organization in Texas. So get, getting involved with us, getting on board, volunteering, doing those things. So that, that's if you're in Texas. If you are a displaced Texan, you know, or you're someone who is preparing to move to Texas, like so many people uh, throughout the United States that are voting with their feet right now to come to Texas, uh, then you can still get involved. We have things that you can do in the TNM. We can have. We've got people you can contact. There's plenty 
to do. You can join, you can become a member, you can donate to our efforts. There's plenty of things people can do. Uh, and then my message to those people that are outside of Texas, that are have no intention of moving to Texas, that are, uh, you know, that they just, this is not, this is not their bailiwick. Texas is not on the radar for them. Uh, what, what they can do and, and what they should do is start having this conversation about their state's relationship in the union right now. Uh, we're working with groups of people and other organizations in other states that want to start in their state what we have done so successfully here in the TNM for their state. Um, as I said about the book that I wrote, Texas, Why and How Texas Will Leave the Union, uh, it's written about Texas. Uh, it's written uh, from a Texas perspective. It is about how Texas can leave the union. But the fact of the matter is, is that the, the grievances and the arguments and, and everything else that, that we talk about in there has application to many, many, many other states in the union. So it's time that we all start asking that hard question. If my state were independent right now, would we vote to join the union? And if you wouldn't vote to join, then why would you even contemplate staying? So that's the conversation that people need to have and, and forming organizations and, and beginning this process, starting this conversation in every single solitary state uh, only helps the, the cause of self-determination as a whole. Daniel, I love that argument. The problem is some of us are married. And that argument doesn't work in marriage. <laughs> so, and, and to, in a big sense, the union yep. is the marriage. That's why the, I love the argument, but it doesn't necessarily work. Divorce is kind of costly. So, well, you know, you have, but you would have to equate that to a marriage, you know, the, and, and I think it's important for all of us to kind of take a step back from these romanticized notions that we have about what the union is and really look at it for what it is. And it is essentially a political and economic union with a mutual defense and uh, trade treaty thrown in uh, with, uh, you know, and, and maybe a, a little a smattering of some postal treaty thrown in as well. But beyond that, that's that's functionally what it is. And and so, you know, in the in the 21st century, I think it's right and proper for states to ask themselves, is our state served by continued participation in this political and economic union? And if not, what do we do about it? Is there a limit to how many co-sponsors you can have on a bill or can you have um, an infinite amount of co-sponsors on a bill in the House and Senate? Well, you'd have, you would have authors uh, and co, you know, you have the author and you have co-authors and then the sponsors over in the Senate, but no, there's no limit. They, they can run right down there to the, uh, to the clerk's office and get oh, wow. added to it. Okay, here I think there's a limit, maybe 12 representatives in the House and maybe only only a few senators. Um, there's a limit here in our state house. Um, so I would say to you as advice, uh, if you want Biederman's bill to pass, and by the way, send Biederman to the Liberty Block, we'll interview him too, because um, he, he needs to you know get this out there. I would say you need to have, for this bill to pass, as many sponsors as possible in the House and maybe send it if it's a companion type bill or a separate bill, as many as possible, 5, 10, 50, all 150 you know, reps to be co-sponsors, and also the petition. During the arguments on the House floor and everything, they're going to reference the petition. If it only has a few hundred thousand signatures, you know, some opposition representatives might say it has no public support in Texas. If it has 20 million out of the 30 million people in Texas signing on to your Texas petition, that I think will bolster the argument. 
Well, the, the reason that petitions here are a little bit weird um, is petitions, you know, it, with the exception of some local petitions, uh, the, the petitions have no effect. Right? Oh, no, I mean, it's unofficial, but just as a gauge of public support, you know what I mean? Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I no, we're we're totally aware of that. But, you know, we're as an organization, we do what other political advocacy organizations do. Right. We focus on. Uh, you know, voter contact. I mean, we, we run like a normal statewide campaign would. And so, um, you know, I, I will, I will tell you that there are some, some massive efforts planned over the next six weeks to eight weeks uh, to really light a fire on this and, and make these guys understand, you know, right now, as we're talking, our people are contacting their legislators, their state reps and state senators, are getting absolutely pummeled. And it's going to be that way until we get this thing across the finish line or they stand between the people and their right to vote on the issue, uh, which could have some serious political implications because the next election cycle is a gubernatorial race. So, um, you know, we're, we're long gamers in the TNM uh, and, and we're, we're looking out not just toward the referendum in this legislative session, but we're looking out another two, four, eight years on down the road to see how this thing could play out. And are you and Biederman doing everything you can to get on all of the biggest shows? I think Biederman was on Glenn Beck's show a few yeah. weeks ago. I happened to hear it on the radio at work. Are you and him and, and everyone else in the movement doing everything you can to get on Ben Shapiro, maybe Dave Rubin, maybe some other big shows, maybe Tucker Carlson, maybe even Mark Levin, if you want a, a tough fight. Um, that's a, that's are you guys doing everything you can? For me. Mark Levin's not going to be a tough fight. Yeah, yeah. Me. No, I, I mean a contentious, yeah. good debate. Yeah. No, uh, yeah. I mean, look, we, like I said earlier, you know, if you, whatever you picture a political advocacy organization doing, we do that. That includes active public relations campaigns, paid advertising, earned media, voter contact. I mean, if you close your eyes and picture what a statewide political advocacy organization or statewide campaign does, we do that. 24-7-365. Jody? I, I, I'm fascinated. I'm grateful for the discussion. Do you, I, I have something to say on closing. If we're, if we're there, you want me to say my closing? Okay. I wanted to say something. Um, I always go, I'm always here. I'm, I'm always in the political discussion, quite frankly, for the moral argument. I really, I could let it all go and focus on my nice life, but I really do care about human lives and human well-being. And, you know, Ed mentioned earlier, the, you know, how do we know if Texas secedes that they're not going to, you know, choose slavery? And I, and I know that was, you know, just kind of an extreme example, but I, it made me think of, you know, uh, a, a century and a half ago, Republicans stopped Democrats from seceding. And, the, you know, did the parties switch? I don't know. I know there's that argument, but I think there's a very good argument that, you know, a century after they stopped the Democrats from seceding, uh, the Democrats returned to their roots. And there's a very good argument in there for LBJ saying, you know, he was going to use the welfare, they were going to have them voting for 200 years. I mean, did he say that or didn't he? I don't know. It sounds like it'd be in character, but let's look at the results and where we are today. And, you know, it seems to me the Democrats have, you know, they're back to where they were, uh, where we should have let them secede before because 
They've got the same human exploitation. Look very closely at what's happening in their jurisdictions. They're using uh, large numbers of people um, to line the pockets of small numbers of people. And it's not just blacks, it's everyone that they can. You know, there are both races or all races in the exploited group. There are now all races in the get rich in the small um, group of people exploiting them. And so, um, you know, I wish we could go back in time and say, you know, we're going to fight you on uh, um, your your plantations and your slavery, but we're going to let you secede because I feel like we kind of have the same thing now. It's it's it, it is their jurisdictions that are locking people in poverty, and they're using the same game. They're using they're using poverty as a means to keep people um, oppressed. They're using poor education systems in a lot of their jurisdictions to keep these people oppressed, uneducated. Um, they're using violence. They're using all the same mechanisms. And so for me, my, my support now for uh, secession for a state is that moral ground of look, perhaps it would have been best originally to fight the slavery, but allow the secession because there's an, in my opinion, and there's an argument to be made that the Democrats are playing the same game and it's no different, let's be done. Ed? Um, well, you know, just to, to build a little bit on what Jody just said, Texas has historically been a Democrat state. I mean, up until the mid 1990s when George W. Bush became governor, um, I think it had been run by Democrats for a long time. Uh, we had a brief, approximately 15 to 20, 25 years of, of um, Republican con seeming control. But in the last couple of election cycles, last uh, four years, Texas has become increasingly closer and closer to a, a purple state. Um, and it concerns me that um, that is not trending back to its historical roots as being a Democrat controlled state. Um, I know that there's some you're telling us that there's some great things in the Texas Constitution. I have no reason to doubt that, that, the, that they exist. Uh, I take you totally at your word on that. But the U.S. Constitution has some great provisions, too, and they're routinely ignored. And, um, you know, given that, uh, that there's no position being taken as to what a post-independence Texas, you know, Texas movement would look like, I'm a little concerned about, uh, about what the end result would be. Um, I'm curious also just, you know, you know, uh, you know, to hear what, if any, you know, large public figures have, have come out in support. Uh, you know, for instance, I was thinking in, in particular of Ron Paul. Uh, has, have you asked him about, has he taken a position on your movement? He hasn't taken a recent position, but I would just draw your attention to the, uh, the picture of him holding up one of our t-shirts on our website. If you want to know where Ron Paul stands on the issue of Texas independence and secession. Uh, look, as this issue progresses, you know, and this is this has been some of the conversations we've had with the elected officials, uh, you know, in this run up to the legislative session. Everyone that is in the public eye is going to be forced into taking a public position. Uh, I cannot, nor will I divulge what they have told uh, any of those conversations I've had in private about where they stand, where they stand. Those people will speak for themselves and, and they will 
be public when they make the decision to. Um, but until they until they publicly come out and make their stance known, uh, then I, I can't I can't out them, uh, nor will I. I will not betray confidence on that. But but look, that, that's what this issue does. This issue it's one of the reasons that that I find Kyle filing the bill so exciting is that it, it provides this sort of a you know this this plumb line, this dividing line that people are going to have to get on one side of it or the other. Legislators are, are the ones that are having to deal with it right now because, you know, the supporters are out in full force dealing with their legislators. Uh, but more and more people are going to have to, that are outside of that political sphere, are going to have to come out and, and make, it, make it known. Uh, you'll start seeing more of that when the legislature sits. Right now, for a lot of folks, it's still kind of a hypothetical they're in the holiday mood <laughs> and not ready to deal with this. But I suspect you'll see some spikes in conversation about this with some public figures taking a stance uh, right around January the 6th, right around January the 12th, and right around January the 20th. <laughs> okay. Okay, Daniel, anything else you would like to close with? No, that, that's it. Look, I, I just wanted to say how much I, I appreciate uh, the conversation today. Uh, I love uh, unpacking this issue, and and Ed, I, I think if we had some more some some additional time, you and I could come to terms on this and and understand. But you know, look, that, that gets really to the heart of this issue, which is there is a lot to unpack. There's a lot of discussion that has to be had that can't be had uh, on uh, on you know one interview or uh, in a, in a Facebook comment section. You know, it's so hard to explain that to people. Sometimes they ask what is seemingly a simple question. Uh, like what's going to happen to my social security if they want it in a Facebook comment. It's like things like this, important issues, especially ones that strike at the heart of what is the political will of the people of Texas. They need time to breathe. They, there needs to be active discussion on it. And so if, if anything was accomplished today, let it be that we had a conversation and, and hopefully that, you know, you guys on here, uh, we'll, we'll discuss it more. We'll be prompted to think about it. And especially those people uh, that are, that are listening or watching uh, let's, let's start having this conversation. It's past time that we had uh, these adult conversations about the relationship of the States and the union. Okay. Uh, and well, one more time, how can people find out more about you and the movement? What's the website again? Absolutely. I, you, I didn't plug it enough. Hang on. <laughs> No, uh, look, you can find out uh, everything about the TNM is located on our website at TNM, like Texas Nationalist Movement, TNM.me. And you can go there and, and everything you want to know about the organization, what our principles and mission are, uh, even down to everyone that, that volunteers on the team, uh, more about Texit, more about the work that we've done over the years. Everything is at TNM.me. Okay. We're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Daniel Miller, for joining us. Um, we wish you all the best luck in the world, not only for your sake, but for ours as well. And once again, this podcast will be up within about a half an hour on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, we invite listeners to join with us live. Have a Thank wonderful you. evening. Go ahead, Ed. Thank you, Dan. And I just want to wish everybody a happy new year. And anyone listening in Georgia, if you're a Republican, go vote. Do I get an amen? Amen. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, guys. <laughs>